You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, let's turn back to the passage that has been read for us uh, from the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel, page 1061, if you're using one of the church Bibles. If you were here last Lord's Day morning, you'll know that uh, we started a new brief evening series last Sunday morning. Those of you who are uh, strangers to St. Peter's, it's how things are done here. Evening series begin in the morning, and the announced series was on the subject of the Bible. Uh, And this was something that the elders and uh, David Robertson, our minister, wanted me to do. And when I uh, gave the titles for the series, I had forgotten about the Christian year. And it hadn't struck me uh, that Easter would fall right at the second of these studies. And so, trying to weave things together... Uh, What I'm doing this evening is continuing on our Easter theme from the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel, but drawing into it what was originally going to be the theme of the fourth and last of our studies together in Scripture, namely, how do we go about studying the Bible? And as soon as I say that, I think your mind will immediately be drawn to the words that Luke records in what is surely one of the most exquisite passages in any of the Gospels. When uh, these two, probably a husband and wife, very possibly actually relatives of the Lord Jesus, are coming away from Jerusalem and they are sad because they have lost Jesus. And I hope by the end we'll be reminded of another couple who left Jerusalem and became sad because they had lost Jesus. And uh, Jesus creeps up on them in that obviously marvelous way he was able to do, and he falls into conversation quite naturally with them, Uh, not quite as though they'd known one another all their lives, they're surprised that he doesn't know what the great issue of the day in Jerusalem has been. And so, they begin to tell him what it is that has happened. And the story really falls into three sections. It begins with this conversation with Jesus, which if you read it with a little care, you should find very striking because these two give one of the clearest expositions of the Christian gospel to be found anywhere in the New Testament. It is really remarkable. They explain precisely to Jesus who they thought Jesus was, why it was they thought He had come, what it was they hoped he would do, and then they say to Jesus, the reason we're sad is because not knowing they are saying this to the resurrected Christ, we're sad because even although people say to us, they've given us hints already today that he's raised from the dead, uh, we just can't bring ourselves to believe that it's happened. We are not trusting in a risen Christ. And there are so many applications of that, aren't there? Uh, People who understand the gospel, people who can expound the gospel, can take you through some of the details of the gospel and why it was that Jesus died in order to be a redeemer. And yet, Jesus himself seems to be unknown to them. Some of you know I spent the years from age 9 to the age 14 
searching the Scriptures as a little boy reading the Scriptures day in and day out with probably less than one handful of exception. And I think I could have explained the message to you. And yet I didn't know Jesus, didn't trust Jesus, didn't manage to put it all together that it really was true. And so the experience they have, which of course is a real experience in history, is also in many ways a parable of the kind of experience many people have, that their, their eyes seem to be in, in somewhere or another veiled from seeing the Jesus about whom they're able to speak in the Scriptures. And that is the position of these two as in verses 19 through 24. They explain to Jesus the gospel. It's kind of humorous really, isn't it? You know, what was going on in, in his mind? Was he thinking, this is surreal? These people are explaining the essential details of the gospel to me and they... I remember sitting in a plane one night crossing the Atlantic and the girl in the middle seat started witnessing to me and I explained to her I was a Christian and she was going on a student mission to Ireland. She got there and she said, uh, I, I bumped into this Christian man called Sinclair Ferguson on the plane and I was witnessing to him. He said he was a Christian and uh, these were some students who had read some of my books. <laughs> they said, do you realize that he has explained the Christian gospel in his books? And uh, you see, they're just like that. And then Jesus does something wonderful, and yet it doesn't seem to twig with them just exactly what's happening. That's what makes this narrative so exquisite. Jesus makes a couple of observations about their spiritual condition. He, he sees right into their, their minds, and he always oh, he says, you're so silly. Maybe foolish in English is a decent enough translation, but it probably doesn't capture the atmosphere. You've been so silly, and your, your hearts have been so slow. And even that expression is striking, isn't it? You know, you have slow feet or a slow mind, but your, your hearts have been slow. And you've not understood the message of the Scriptures. And so you notice in verse 27, Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Emmaus is uh, seven, eight miles away from Jerusalem, presumably. They're, the roads are, are worse than the Dundee and Angus roads. It, it, uh, you don't sprint along them. They're probably older. They're sad. You know, we're maybe talking here about taking the entire afternoon. They're probably sometimes stopping and saying, just, you just explain that again. That just kind of flew past me there when you were when you were in the second half of Isaiah, could you just stop and explain it again? Here they are, and for two, maybe three hours, and none of them, they don't have a Gideon Bible among them. Uh, none of them has ever owned a copy of the Bible. But they've been immersed in it from childhood. They know huge chunks of it off by heart. And so you can almost see Jesus as he's moving along, going through the Scriptures and saying, now, do you, do you, remember, do you remember there in, in Isaiah or do you remember there in Jeremiah? And uh, one of the things he's doing is he's reaching back into the Scriptures like a, a great tapestry, and from different parts of that tapestry, he's, he's as it were, like, a, like an art expert. It's not surprising that artists have wanted to paint this scene. Like an art expert, he's, he's taking them to one part of the canvas and he's saying, now, just watch where that symbol or person or event is. Look at the direction in which they are facing. And it's almost as though he's, he's taking them around the outskirts of this grand picture that is the Old Testament and he's very slowly 
bringing them into the middle so that they will see that in all parts of the Old Testament, these great events, these great figures, these great promises, these great prophecies, these particular experiences, in different ways, they are all, they are all drawing the eye of the person looking at the canvas into the center. And then, intriguingly, it's only as they see Jesus breaking bread, and Luke doesn't tell us anything that people have imagined the reason why they recognize Jesus. The reason they recognized Jesus was because their eyes were opened. And they had what the, the, I remember, Kretsch and Crutchfield, Introduction to Modern Psychology, telling me as a first-year college student, they had what the psychologists at least used to call an aha experience. Archimedes in the bath. Or you, when you're looking for your keys and can't find them, or for a street and you can't remember where it is, and then everything fits together and you say, aha, I found it. Eureka, I found it. And their eyes are opened, and, and they turn to one another. They, it, obviously, this happens, well, they're probably a married couple. This is how it happens. It, 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 they've lived together long enough for these things to happen simultaneously to them. And they say, did you feel what I felt on the road today? My heart was burning within me. I and mean, I could scarcely reflect on the fact, why is my heart burning within me? But there was something about what he did there that caused my heart to burn with hope and expectation. And now, of course, they understood exactly why it was that that had happened. It was because Jesus had used the Old Testament Scriptures to point them to himself and through those scriptures had opened their eyes to understand how everything fit together. And although they hadn't realized what was happening, they, they felt as though a fire was being kindled in their hearts, and hope was being kindled. And so, although they had been sad on the way from Jerusalem, we are told that uh, they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, not bad for a middle-aged couple. And it's nighttime now. And they burst in on the other disciples and they say to the other disciples, it's true. And of course, they discovered that some of these disciples also knew that it was true. And so we're told throughout this passage how Jesus, first of all, opened the Scriptures. Then we're told later on in the passage that He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And then thirdly, that He caused their hearts to burn through the Scriptures. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a, I don't know what kind of flying creature might have moved along with them or or uh, uh, an unrecognized fellow traveler on the road, just getting near enough, getting up behind them, so engrossed they don't notice you're there. I mean, you would be able to write the greatest book on Bible study ever written if you had just been able to be there. Isn't it a pity? This is where the sermon ends tonight. Isn't it a pity we have no idea what Jesus said? Well, if that were true, that would be where the sermon would end tonight. But we've more than one idea what Jesus said. Actually, the way into discovering the kind of things that Jesus would have said is to look at the New Testament. And uh, if you're one of those people who abuses your Bible a little with multicolored pens and pencils, to mark every single quotation from the Old Testament, 
every single allusion that you can see, reference that you can see in the New Testament to the Old Testament, and you will be absolutely astonished at how much you are able to learn Jesus taught these disciples, and then, of course, in the six-week seminar that followed, about how all these things in Moses and in the prophets were actually pointing to him. And so, it wasn't an accident that he had suffered and died and risen again. It was the way in which the Scriptures had been fulfilled. To them, you see, the the Old Testament, like to many people actually, the Old Testament was like uh, one of those uh, puzzle books that you give to the children on a long journey that have like 94 dots, you know, and the the children, they they go from one to two and so on. And and then then eventually, usually at different points as they they get older, they, you know, like in my day, they would have said, oh, it's Elvis Presley, (laughs) you know, or it's Ringo Starr or whoever it is. But you see, all they saw was dots. And in a way, I think that's often true of us ourselves. We see particularly the Old Testament when we're reading it and studying it. It's a a kind of bunch of dots. And, you know, our Sunday school teachers, well-meaning, they told us to recite the books of the Bible and they told us to recite the kings of Israel, but it just all seemed like so many dots. And so, the question I want to, to try and, and answer this evening, very uh, superficially in many ways, is this. How do we join the dots of the Old Testament so that we see the face of Jesus? How do we join the dots of the Old Testament so that we see that the picture that is emerging, where all these different elements of the Old Testament Scriptures are are ultimately going to coalesce and come together, is in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that every single part of Scripture is, in a sense, connected to the trunk road, the motorway that goes right through the middle of the Old Testament Scriptures and arrives at the coming and the ministry and the dying and the rising and the ascending and the reigning and the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a tall order, uh, but uh, let me begin where I think Jesus would have begun. That would, that would have been an interesting question to have asked for, for the ushers to have handed out a three-by-five card as we came in to say, if Jesus was going to take a middle-aged couple through the Bible to show them how the whole of the Old Testament pointed to him, where would Jesus have begun? I'm pretty sure Jesus would have begun in Genesis chapter 3. He might have begun with creation, But certainly, if he began with creation, he would have moved very quickly to the promise of God in Genesis 3, verse 15. You remember when the man and the woman have sinned, and God goes to each of the characters who are involved in that sin in different ways, to the man and to the woman, and then to the serpent who has instigated the whole rebellion against God. And he gives this amazing promise in Genesis 3.15 when he says words that we all ought to memorize. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that's um, an important text because it's picked up in the last book of the Bible, not only there, but especially there, where in the book of Revelation, it becomes clear that the serpent is a figure for Satan, and that what has happened all the way through history 
is that those who have belonged to the family of the serpent, those who have been in the hands of the evil one, which we all are by nature, have been set over against those who have belonged to the seed of the woman, the the seed of faith, the people who belong to the Lord. And throughout history, those two families have been engaged with one another. But that engagement, this promise says, that engagement is going to come to a climax. Notice how he puts it. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's pretty clear in that last statement that we are engaged now not just with seed in general, with offspring in general, with multitudes of people in history in general, but you, serpent, you, Satan, you will bruise his heel, his heel. So this is an individual conflict, and in that process, he will crush your head. So, what does this mean? How does this, how does this provide us with a clue to reading the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures so that we will be able to see Jesus? Well, it does so, I want to suggest to you, and again, this is skating over the surface in so many ways, it does so in four ways. This verse gives us four categories into which everything that happens and everything that is said in the whole of the Old Testament as it points to Jesus, absolutely everything fits. I was brought up, as many of you were, on the Scripture union method. You know, you pray and you read the passage And then you ask questions. What does this passage have to say about God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? What does this passage teach me? Is there something I can learn here that I'm supposed to do or to avoid? Is there something I can learn about myself? And that's that's very fine. But it does have to be put into this bigger picture. Because what this book is for is to show me the face of Jesus. What this book is for is to draw me into the very same kind of experience that these disciples had. That is, that the meaning of the Scriptures should become plain, that my understanding should be open to receive it, and that my heart should burn within me with love and faith and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm suggesting to you that uh, there, there, are these, there are these four categories given to us in Genesis 3.15, and I think I would be bold enough to say there is nothing in the Old Testament, absolutely nothing in the Old Testament, that you cannot fit into one of these four categories or perhaps more to be able to say, oh, now I see how this is connected to Jesus. Well, what are the categories? Well, the first is the category of the seed. God says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And of course, that idea, just think about that idea for a moment how that idea of the seed is carried out all the way through the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures until it's seen as, for example, it is by Paul in Galatians chapter 3 as ultimately pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's the story of the Old Testament? The story of the Old Testament is often the future of that seed is to say the least, endangered. 
Remember how this promise was developed with Abraham? What was the word that was given to Abraham? In your seed, Abraham, you who belong to the seed of the woman, in your seed, the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And what, what's the situation for Abraham? The situation for Abraham is he's pressing a hundred, and he still doesn't see the fruition of that promise. And it's endangered. And then even when his son Isaac is born, he, you remember he's tested about how, does, how fully does he really trust God's promise that through that seed the nations are, are going to be blessed when God tests him and tells him to go up the mountain and to, and to sacrifice his son. And then you remember as he shows his willingness to do that, God stays his hand and says, no, that's not really the plan, Abraham. That's the test of your faith in whether this promise of the seed is going to be fulfilled. But the plan is not that your son will be sacrificed. There is another seed of the woman who is my son, and he is the one who's going to be sacrificed. And the story goes on in remarkable ways when you think about where does that seed go that eventually leads to the Lord Jesus? Don't you think that Jesus might have said, uh, have you ever wondered what the book of Ruth is doing in the Old Testament? There's, yes, wonderful story about this Moabitess. And yes, but he would say, don't you remember how it ends? by telling you that this woman is brought into the line of Abraham that is going to lead to David. And there's something else you need to know. This would have been specially relevant if they really were relatives of the Lord Jesus because they might have known the family story. That that seed eventually that had been endangered that had brought into its development this Moabite woman that eventually led to King David had fallen on the hardest times because the, the people who, as it were, were the guardians of that seed were uh, relatives of this woman who, as a young virgin, had been visited by an angel and said, there is a seed and that seed is the Son of God, and you're going to bear him. And yes, as she learned shortly after his birth there, there is going to be a sword that will pierce your soul as well. It was an amazing story about this amazing seed. And then ultimately, of course, as Paul looks back on this, don't you think it's significant that Paul's traveling companion was the man who wrote this gospel. Paul says, I want to tell you where that seed ends up. He says, Christ became a curse for us in order that the blessing of the seed that was promised to Abraham might come even to those who are Gentiles. And so there's a line, there's a line that you can draw from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Galatians 3.13 that tells you the story. There is this, there is this uh, tracer line goes goes right through it. Any of you ever watch uh, uh, golf tournaments particularly where in, in the amazing technology they've got some wizard thing and you can see Rory McIlroy hit a golf ball 320 yards and there'll be a red tracer on it. It appears immediately. And if it wasn't there, you had no idea where the ball would be. And it can be like the same in studying the Scriptures. Where does all this go? And here is one of the tracer lines, the seed. And then there's another element in this promise in Genesis 3.15, isn't there? There's an element of conflict. And this is a huge thing. This is big in the Bible, isn't it? As God moves history towards the coming of Jesus, 
the whole movement is going to be characterized by enmity and battle and conflict and attempts to destroy the purposes of God. And uh, you see that almost immediately, don't you? Right in this family. What's the first thing that happens in this family? Well, there's been conflict between Adam and Eve already. You know, it's her fault. No, it's his fault. And then in their family, Eve, who, when her son is born, seems to hope that this is actually the seed that's going to bring redemption to them. And there's, there's murder in the first family. The seed of the serpent, seeking to destroy the, the faith seed of the woman. And, and you see it again, the, 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 the conflict between Noah and his little family and the rest of the world. And then, then, you, then you see conflict in the life of Abraham. Some of it's caused by himself. And then you see conflict in the family of Joseph. And then you see this great conflict between the Egyptian Pharaoh and the Israelite people as Pharaoh seeks to marginalize them and eventually to destroy them, doesn't he? Why? What's the point of saying every male child has got to be killed? What's the point of that? Well, it's a pogrom, isn't it? It's a perfect way of destroying the seed. And there is this conflict so yes, it was a huge conflict, but it wasn't just a dot on the screen. It was actually part of something bigger, the serpent seeking to destroy the purposes of God. What was your favorite story if you were a boy in the Old Testament? Maybe it was Daniel, maybe it was Joseph, maybe it was David and Goliath. And uh, our well-meaning Sunday school teachers said, boys, you'd think they were presidents of the United States. You can be anything you set your heart on. You can slay the giants. That's not what that story is doing there in the scriptures. That's a, that's a part of it. What's really going on there? It is that the Philistines are about to destroy the people of God. And so when David comes, what does David say? He says, he comes in the name of the Lord. This is not a matter of ethnic uh, configuration. This is a matter of whether the kingdom of God is going to survive. And incidentally, it's interesting as you go through the Old Testament. You know, sometimes people say, you know, the Bible is full of miracles. Hardly any miracles in the Bible. If you take the time from Abraham to the time of Jesus, there are maybe four seasons of no longer than a single generation when there are extraordinary evidences of the power of God. They, weren't, they, were, they were the very opposite of everyday occurrences in the Bible. They were rare in the Bible. Otherwise, they would never have been signs in the Bible. When do they come? They come when the kingdom of God is about to be destroyed, without exception. In the days of Noah, in the days of Moses, in the days of Elijah, in the days of Daniel. And of course, it's the day of Daniel that gives us, in a sense, the ultimate picture, isn't it? What's going on in the days of Daniel? It is that Babylon has come to destroy Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has been well nigh swallowed up by Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, it's all part of this conflict that isn't visible to our eyes, but is spoken about in Scripture that eventually is going to lead to the final conflict that's mentioned here in Genesis 3.15. When what does the Lord Jesus do? The very first thing he does after he has been baptized and publicly named as the servant and son of the Lord. What does he do? He heads into enemy-occupied territory in the wilderness. 
and seeks to deal with the figure who is behind the centuries-long conflict and begin to establish his kingdom and power. And you see, that's where it's all been leading. So there is the seed and there is the conflict. And then the third thing that there is is the dominion or the victory, isn't there? You will crush his heel, says God, to the serpent, evil one, but he will crush your head. It's the story of dominion. And there are moments in in the Old Testament, aren't there? There are moments in the Old Testament where where you just get a a little glimpse that makes you think, maybe it is actually going to be true. You, you almost might sense that with Joseph. Joseph, this faithful youngster, has actually become the second most important man in the world and for all practical purposes, the most powerful man in the world. He is the only man who can save the nations around the Mediterranean. The only man. And you, and you get a glimpse of it. Is, is, this, is this the dominion? Is this the crushing of the head of the serpent? Where even in Egypt... And then, of course, there is David, and, and especially Solomon, and the expansion of the kingdom. And, and those things that are said about Solomon, those pictures that we get in, in the Psalms of the prospect that he would, he would, as it were, have a kind of universal rule and that it would never end. What was that? I would have been wholly misunderstood if people thought that that was like, you know, a rule Britannia, you know, the, the, the empire in which the sun never rises or sun never sets or always does both. No, no, that was, uh, that was uh, an expression of this hope that the serpent's head would be crushed and that the seed of the woman, the seed of faith, the promised seed would, would have dominion. And so you get these little glimpses of triumph and victory. You get it in individuals. Think about, the, think about the conflict between Elijah and the prophets of Baal where, where you get this great glimpse of, of the possibility that this promise of Satan's head being crushed, my, his head was crushed on Mount Carmel. But it's not the fulfillment. And then you, then you see it coming, Jesus Jesus' birth is announced over against the announcement of the Caesar that all the world will be taxed. And and this is what you get, isn't it, right at the beginning of Luke's gospel? You get this question, well, which kingdom is going to win out? Is it going to be the kingdom of Caesar? Or is it going to be the kingdom of God in this baby that's been born. And then you see it in the wilderness again. And you see it in all the conflicts in which Jesus is engaged. And you see systematically, he seems to be crushing the head of the serpent. And, and he's, he's extending his dominion. And one of the ways he's extending his dominion is because he's, he's pushing back. He's pushing back evil and the effects of sin. And so he comes to somebody who's got leprosy and cleanses him. Comes to a woman with an issue of blood and he heals her. Comes to a blind man and enables him to see. And you see what he's doing? He's crushing the head of the serpent. All the time he's crushing the head of the serpent. He's giving us little glimpses. These two had probably seen those glimpses and not understood what they meant. They weren't just marvelous things that Jesus was doing to individuals. He was was weeding the, the garden. And then, of course, ultimately, he would do this on the cross, wouldn't he? 
he would crush the head of the serpent. Just when the serpent thought, I've got him now, he crushed his heel. That heel was coming down on his head and crushing him and demolishing his kingdom. That's why Matthew's gospel ends the way it does, isn't it? What does Jesus say? What's, what's the summary of all this? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He now has dominion. Yes, it's true, it's not yet fully and finally expressed, but it's real. And then there's a, a fourth way of thinking about this that joins all these together. We, we think about tracing the seed, and there's the, there we might say, there's the, there's the blue tracer right through to Jesus. And then there's this tracer of conflict, and that's a, a dark red tracer to Jesus. And then there's this third tracer of, of dominion. Would that be a gold tracer? And then there's this red tracer, and that's the tracer of suffering that those who belong to the seed of the woman, the seed of faith, ultimately to Jesus himself, they will experience suffering. Because in order to bring all this about, the one who is promised is going to suffer. And therefore, all those who hang on to this promise, all those who belong to this seed, all those who are part of his dominion, all those who are engaged with him in conflict, well, they're going to suffer too. Why, do, why does David suffer so much? Because he hangs on to the promise so tightly. Why is it that Jesus was able to take them back to the Psalms and the apostles frequently take us back to the Psalms and say, do you, do you see connectedness to Jesus there? Why is it? Well, it's precisely because of what Jesus says in this passage the way to glory, the way to triumph, the way to victory, the way to redemption is through suffering. And so all those who are, who are caught up by faith in the Old Testament to believe this promise that God is going to send a Redeemer, it's almost as though there is a kind of reverse shock goes back into them something of the pattern of Jesus' life appears in their lives. Just as the New Testament emphasizes frequently, if we belong to a crucified and risen Savior, then that pattern is going to be worked out in our lives too. And so, Joseph, to take one obvious example, the whole story of his life is how suffering and humiliation leads to exaltation and triumph and dominion and glory. And you see the same in David's Psalms. It's the same pattern of suffering that leads to glory, of agony that leads to ecstasy. Yes, for these believers in a miniature way and, and not fully worked out, but you see, as Jesus takes them through the Old Testament, these scriptures and doubtless many other scriptures, he must have been saying to them, you see the pattern, you see the seed, you see the conflict, you see the promise of dominion, and you see that God does this through suffering in crushing the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman will have his heel crushed. Don't you see that's what just happened at the end of last week? That the suffering came to the climax? Don't you remember how often behind his back you said to one another, oh, he reminds me of those servant songs in the second half of the prophecy of Isaiah to which doubtless we'll come soon about the one who would suffer. 
And what we've just witnessed, it, it's so reminiscent, isn't it, of he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, chastised to bring us peace, beaten in order that we might be healed. There was no beauty in him. He was almost unmanned by his crucifixion. No beauty in him that we should desire him. And yet that servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 would be exalted through his suffering. And you see, he was joining up the dots, wasn't he? And putting them into place. And it was almost as though, it was almost as though he was standing and saying, look in the scriptures as a mirror. Let me just let me just get my arms round the pair of you and and let's look into the scriptures as a mirror. What do you see there? And uh, what, of course, they ultimately saw was. This was why they said, you know, my heart was burning within me because I, I thought I was almost on fire as though I almost got it. I think that's what it means. I, I, I was almost getting it because there was a face in the mirror that I thought I'd seen somewhere before. And now I realize that my eyes somehow or another were veiled over because that was the face I recognized when he broke bread with us. And I realized it was all true, every single word, and that the whole of the Old Testament scriptures pointed to the Lord Jesus. And so their hearts burned within them as the gospel became clear in the pages of the Old Testament scriptures. Very interesting that uh, William Barclay in his translation of Luke 24, I have great distaste for Barclay's theology. But his translation at this point shows a touch of literary genius. He translates these words as the couple turning to one another and saying, were not our hearts strangely warmed? I can see that doesn't mean much to some of you. You're not Wesleyan Methodists. You remember Wesley's experience in Aldersgate Street where he went reluctantly and heard somebody reading from Luther's introduction to Paul's letter to the Romans. And he says, my heart was strangely warmed and I believed that my sins had been forgiven. And that's where it all leads at the end of the day, the forgiveness of sins and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned, was it half an hour ago? Another couple who went to Jerusalem and came away interestingly at the end of the feast. And they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. And they ran back and found him. And here at the end of the gospel, isn't this interesting? At the end of the gospel, here's another couple leaving Jerusalem, knowing already they think that they've lost Jesus. But when they find him, they run back to tell others. But there's a bigger story here, actually. This story, in a sense, is the, is the bookend of the whole message of the Bible. The message of the Bible begins with a younger couple, full of joy, in a magnificent garden. And they sin. And their eyes, we are told, were opened and they saw that they were exposed in their nakedness and their sinfulness before God. And here, the tragedy that brought about the fall of the original creation is bookended by the glory of the victory that begins the new creation when this couple 
almost identical language, isn't it? They see him at the breaking of the bread, and their eyes are opened, and they believe in Jesus. I have a book, I confess, I don't think I've ever cracked to open, but it's got a great title. When you read the Bible, look for Jesus. Because if you miss him, you haven't joined the darts. And you've missed the central message. Or have you? Or kind of lost sight of the central message? When we study the scriptures then, let us look for Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for all it has to teach us. We, we know that we, we simply scrape the surface so often, but even the surface is so satisfying to us. We have so much to praise you for that you have given us your word and that you have begun to help us to join the dots. And we know that in our study, sometimes we make mistakes and join the dots in the wrong way and don't see things clearly. But we pray that more and more the experience of these two on the Emmaus Road will be our experience as we get to know your word better and better. How, how excited they must have been and maybe even said to one another, we need to talk more about what the Bible means so that we can understand our Savior even better. We thank you for those six weeks that he spent with them coming and going and opening their understanding and causing their hearts to burn. And we pray that here in our own church, not only we may experience that as we gather and the Lord Jesus comes by his Spirit and opens the scriptures in our minds and causes our hearts to burn. But we pray that there may be many more who will come in here among us and as they leave, perhaps puzzled at first, they will wonder why their hearts were burning and be drawn more and more to our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is risen and that he is with us and that we can recognize ourselves in this marvelous picture and real story in the Gospel of Luke. And we pray that our hearts may burn more and more with faith and love in our Lord Jesus, for our Lord Jesus, and to one another. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.